if you repeat results, you are in the business that is diagonally opposite to innovation. You know, I've heard people say it's all about execution. Blackberry was executing really well. Trouble is, the world changed while they were busy executing. The most powerful catalyst for getting people into the right frame of mind to do something different and to innovate is actually the sharing of stories. Welcome to this special edition of the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm David DeWolf, founder and CEO of Three Pillar Global. For this episode, I'll be joined by Jessica Hall, Three Pillars Vice President of Product Strategy and Design, to discuss our new book, The Product Mindset, which was just released. We wrote this book to inspire organizations to change the way they think and operate in the digital economy. During our discussion, we'll unpack the key characteristics of successful digital products and the three core principles that drive their creation, minimizing time to value, solving for need, and excelling at change. We'll also talk about the challenge of an antiquated IT mindset and how leaders can embrace company-wide thinking that leads to great products and thriving businesses. For this conversation, we will also be joined by Sean Dubervac, founder and president at Avrio Institute, who will moderate our discussion. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's start the show. I'm Sean Dubervac, author of New York Times bestseller book, Digital Destiny, and I'm joined today by CEO of Three Pillar, David DeWolf, and the VP of Product Strategy and Design, Jessica Hall. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. It's great to be here with you. We're talking about your new book, The Product Mindset. What an exciting time to be uh, bringing new ideas to the table. Before we jump into the meat of the book, let's talk a little bit about the process mm. that you followed to, to get here. Talk about how the book came to be. Yeah. So the product mindset itself, the concept, really started early on in the days of, of Three Pillar with just some client experiences and starting to learn what is different about building a software product. That that software, which is being bought and sold in this digital economy, um, from other types of IT assets. And as the company matured, we began to share this idea more and more with our employees to the point of having a formal training program. And uh, I'll never forget the day when uh, a client came to us and said, I cannot figure it out. What is different between your team and my team? Like, I, I think we try to hire the great people, but there's just something in how they think. And we hemmed and hawed and we said, well, you know, we do do this product mindset training. Maybe that's the difference. And so we ended up sharing it with uh, a client. Uh, and this was many, many years ago. And it ended up being a tremendous impact. And we started to share it with other clients uh, to the point that we had a client um, that actually left their employer, went to a new company and came to us and said, I'm not ready to build anything yet, but that product mindset training that you did, will you do that for us? I, I'd love to teach my team that. And um, that began a process of us beginning to think about taking that to market and sharing it with the world, that there's really something different. We started with some workshops, experimented with that. And through those workshops, the number one piece of kind of question, the number one piece of feedback that we got was, would you please share this with my CEO, CFO, you name it, CO, they wanted it shared. And it was executive teams need to hear this. And so the original concept of the book was, you know what, let's write an executive version that a executive can read on a flight from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco. That, that was the initial idea um, and, and where it was hatched from. 
So we've trained, oh gosh, uh, probably more than a thousand people in this idea internally. And then uh, under Heather's guidance, Lindy and I started doing these workshops and people really, really loved them, but they said, you know, I like this. This is the way we should be doing things. This is the right way. We enjoy this. We feel like this is more empowering, but we can't get the buy-in we need from our organization. Our, Our CEO, our VP of engineering, our CTO, our CPO, whoever these people are in the organizations, they weren't bought in. So if we could come at this from two levels, we knew we could get practitioners. We knew they could buy in from our own people and all the people we've talked to outside. If we can get CEOs on board, then we thought we could really change things, not just for our own employees and our own clients, but even broader and, and helping people and companies grow. Well, I've read the book six times now. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I feel like I've got that workshop on my bookshelf. So whenever I need a refresher, I just turn to that, that bookshelf and pull product mindset off the shelf and, and get a refresher on that. Talk about how you're feeling now, now that the book <laughs> has finally come to fruition. I know this date probably felt like it was far into the future, and, and here it is. How do you feel now that the book is, is live? What's your sentiment? Excited, relieved, uh, not quite ready to receive judgment. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I've been in tech my whole career. And so this idea of iteration, this idea that we're going to put it out, and it may not be perfect, it may not be everything we need, but we're going to learn and we'll improve. Well, at some point, the publisher says, uh, you don't get to change things anymore. Yeah, you, the, whatever you did, yeah, it's out. Maybe, if you're lucky, you get a second edition. So on one hand, it's incredibly exciting to get to this point and see what now becomes possible because of it. On the other hand, it's going up. Great. I mean, it's a great book. We we actually already have a whole document with notes of things will change in the mm-hmm. second version. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I think that's a great point is we come from this digital world where we're used to iterating and continually evolving. And this was a very big difference for us of really use the word birthing a book and, you know, as a father of seven kids, I'm not going to insult my wife and say that it was birthing <laughs> a book, but um, it felt very much like this long process of really bringing something to life. And I think, Jess, you you shared really well the, the, the hesitation of putting your thoughts and your ideas out there, right? At the beginning, as you're writing this down, you're thinking, is this really different? Does it really matter? But I think where, where I'm so excited is we have, as we, we put the book into print, as we had advanced copies, the amount of feedback that we have gotten. Um, I had a software executive, um, probably the most meaningful feedback I've received yet, software executive that has been in software product companies at the C-level for 30 years. Uh, read the book uh, as one of the early reviewers and come back to me and say, David, I've known for years that product was different from software, but I've never been able to put it in words. It's always been, if I, I see it, I know it. You nailed it. This makes total sense. And that was just like, oh, right? Because you live with this in your head for so long that you're not so sure it's novel and good and you know, that the world will receive it. Um, but I, I think I'm, I'm just so grateful that the world has received it and that it seems to be resonating. Um, and so there's a lot of excitement around that to see it actually hit the wild for the first time. Everyone I've spoken with finds that the book really resonates with them. And and for me, personally, it helped me think about the world differently Mm -hmm. and helped me think about how forces exert themselves in in different ways. And so as we move forward, I think it's an important insight that you've you've brought to the table. Let's dive into the book and let's talk a little bit about the insights that you uncover in the book. In the mindset, you you note that a successful digital product has three core characteristics, Mm -hmm. attributes. One, it's got to be self-funded. 
Two, it needs to be chosen by the customer. And three, it needs to, it's never done. So we talk about the book having to be done. <laughs> <laughs> Did your products get to avoid that and are never done? Let's break those down one at a time and, and what you mean by that and what executives should be thinking about when they think about does this digital product fulfill those needs? Does it have those successful characteristics? So first, self-funded. What do you yeah. mean by a digital product has to be self-funded? Yeah, so, so these characteristics of product are so important for understanding what you're building uh, because we, we find that those that are building software oftentimes come from a legacy of building software that's different. They don't understand the difference. And so self-funding in particular is all about, uh, one of my favorite quotes in the book um, is um, that, that software products are about creating dollars, not saving pennies. And in the world of IT software, we're automating things, we're building software to make people more efficient in an existing supply chain. But what we learned very early on at Three Pillar is that the difference about a product is that you actually are the value proposition. You actually, the, the software product is what is sold. It is the good or service of the digital economy. And because of that, it has to create its own revenue stream. And so it's, it's not about saving pennies in an ROI that can be easily calculated. It's about creating dollars, creating new markets, all of those types of things and navigating that within a space. And that makes the mindset so fundamentally different of the team that's working on it because they have to make judgment calls in the moment of how they're implementing things, how they're building things, how they're prioritizing things based on this reality that it's got to drive a business in and of itself, not rely on a healthy business and just try to optimize it and make it more efficient. Um, and so this characteristic of self-funding is all about that, that that is fundamentally different when you're building a software product from other types of software. One of my very first clients at Three Pillar was in education. And what you need to know about education is that the sales cycle for education products is pretty prescribed. It happens at certain points in the year. So there's a certain time where you need to close deals. There's a certain time where you need to onboard new clients, and it corresponds to the school calendar. Uh, we had a client. They've been going for a while. They were starting to struggle with revenue. And it was coming up on that critical uh, sales cycle in their year. And he had a list of tons of stuff. And there was just no way, no way the uh, engineering team was going to be able to do it all. And so we went through and we said, okay, what are the three things that buyers need? Great. And I picked up each one of the features you want to do. And I said, does it help this one, this one, this one? Okay, backlog, not going to do that. And then we kept going through and we kept going through and we started to prioritize it. And I'll never forget, I picked up a card. I turned around and he said, I know what you're going to say, put it in the bottom. And so it was that moment where he connected with I've got, we need to really make sure we're focusing on what is going, you know, what is not going to drive revenue and fund this, to, you know, three years from now? What is going to help me get through this sales cycle? What is going to serve my customers now? And that's a hard thing because people do want to plan for the future. And one of the stories in the book, I think that's one of our biggest regrets is we worked with a client in healthcare, a company that had a tremendous opportunity to help people with um, really serious behavioral conditions and, and remedy those. And, and that was also a pretty attractive business opportunity. So the opportunity was there. They had great way to manage the patients, but they wanted to build you know, for every possible permutation of everything they could possibly have. And their engineering team spent 70% of their time planning. 
70% of the time, imagining a future that would never be guaranteed, that would never come to fruition if they couldn't get some revenue in the door tomorrow. And we just could not get them to let go. We cannot get them to shift to say, we've got to do this because once we start doing, we can get there. But tomorrow's not promised. It is not guaranteed. You get today, and if you can do enough today to get tomorrow, that's lucky. And maybe you get there a little more technical debt than you wanted, but you'll be there. As you're describing that, what comes to mind is this one of my favorite visuals, if we can all picture. It comes from our, our former CTO, actually, Jonathan Rivers. He's now the CTO of Fortune. And um, he used to talk about the stack of dollars on the table and how when you're building products as you're investing, you're actually taking those dollars off the table and the stack is getting smaller and smaller. And when you're building a product, you have to build software that puts dollars back in the stack before you run out. Whereas if you're building other types of software, you don't have to worry about it because something else is putting those dollars on the stack. And I think that's the reality. And what's shocking in this world is how many people you go to and they're building software products and you ask them, what's your primary objective, right? And they can't say, I am trying to grow X dollars of revenue or I am trying to capture this market share or the, the crisp objective that's actually going to help them fund what that is they're building, they're just confused. And so I think the lesson in it is get really, really tight on what that objective is and how it's going to self-fund. There are different ways to self-fund. One is direct revenue. Another one is create such good metrics that somebody else is going to invest, right? That's valid, but you've got to be focused on how do you put more dollars on that stack on the table. In a financial services company, very close to where we are, and uh, we were working with one of their divisions. Everybody on that team had the app we were building on their phone. So if they ran into anybody, said, "Hey, what you guys working on?" They're like, "Hey, check it out. Here it is." Every time. And so that's not necessarily putting more dollars into the system, but it's putting a lot more support, a lot more stakeholder buy-in, a lot more alignment into the system. Because the first thing I do as a consultant. When I go into an organization, I said, so what are the goals for the next three months? And I will ask 10 people in a row, 13 people in a row, 15 people in a row, so what are you guys doing? What's, what's, the, what's the game plan here? And I can tell you everything I need to know about your organization and how your team answers that question. Well, now, after they read the book, you're going to walk in and you're going to say, what are you working on? And they're saying, we're, we're trying to grow dollars and not save pennies. So know that the message is resonating when you hear that. We will have changed the world if that happens. <laughs> the, the second characteristic that you talk about for a successful digital product is it has to be chosen by the consumer, that it isn't good enough anymore to be just a great product, that you now have to be chosen by the consumer. Talk about what that looks like in today's digital world? So it used to be, a long time ago, you would need a lot of capital and a lot of resources and a lot of connections in order to bring something new to market. You know, it takes 10 years to bring a car to market. I don't know how many years it took to bring and how much capital and resources it take to build a building like the one we're in. It takes two years to bring a book to market. Yeah, two years <laughs> to bring a book to market. But to bring a software product to market? That's a credit card and eight hours and a six-pack of Dr. Pepper. I mean, there's, there's so much that can be done with using the cloud and using all the tools, and there's so many available, even tools that don't even require that you know how to code. And you can do that, and you can start to make money. You start eroding market share because we have never had more choices than we do today. 
I, one of my responsibilities at Three Pillars, I lead the UX team. I get hit up 10 times a week from somebody who's trying to sell me a new tool, and new ones are coming on the market. I get to choose amongst all the ones that are already out there, amongst all the ones that are coming on the market, amongst, and you know, I don't have to be locked into a three-year, multi-year contract where I pay via an invoicing system. It's really hard to, for my uh, finance team to process a bill. I just slap a credit card down the table and I'm done. And if I don't like you, I'm going to pull that credit card back up and I'm going to go somewhere else. I think that's a really key point, right? Because a lot of times what we've learned is people think about initial choice, that initial purchasing choice, and that's important. But oftentimes people make that initial choice based on a lot of different factors than they make the choice to continue and to continue to use. And so this is where this idea of of need comes in, right? If you're gonna be chosen, not just initially, but on an ongoing basis, you have to solve a real problem. You have to actually solve for the need of your customer so that it's not just the buzz, it's not just um, the push and and the, the, the great story or the brand message, but it's actually a utility that is solving needs of customers. And so we talk in the book about this difference of choice is incredibly important, but it's not just initial choice, it's ongoing choice because the cost of change for everybody is so low, right? Um, A a user can switch. I mean, it's considered horrible customer service if you can't terminate anymore. Right, and so you got to be able to pull the plug and swipe the credit card somewhere else, and um, and and so we have to to build for that. Wonderful. I mean, I think that's fabulous insights we can all learn from. The third thing you mentioned about digital products is that the successful ones are never done. What does that look like in the real world? And we joked about it with the the book having to be done. Yeah. I like to say that a, a book is never finished; it's just abandoned at some point. <laughs> I like Let that. your hands. I think they just took it away from That's me. That's right; they ripped it out. Of they your didn't hands. want me to do it anymore. Right? Yeah. That's right. No, I mean, there's there's this very real reality that 20 years ago we built software for the enterprise that would be a six, nine-month, maybe two-year project. You had to build something, and it would run. I mean, how many COBOL systems are still running, right, for those technical geeks out there um, that we're all, all well aware of that have been running for 34 years? Um, and the reality in this day and age is that the expectation is continual innovation. If you are not evolving your product if you are not um, keeping up with expectations, and those expectations can be regulatory expectations, they can be user expectations, they can be performance expectations, there are all sorts of expectations. If you're not keeping up with that, the market share you've worked so hard to capture, you are losing because customers have choice. And so the big flaw that we see is the CFO that is looking for the project plan, and it is going to be a capital expense for nine months, and they're gonna budget it as a project, right? Um, Products aren't done that way. It's an operational cost. It's ongoing R&D. You have to expect to evolve it and continually take it to the next level. Um, and, And that is fundamentally different from a world where, hey, I'm building this piece of software, it has to meet these requirements, and then we're done. No, 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 no. In this world, we build it, users may love it, but tomorrow they may not. And so we have to evolve it over and over and we have to embrace this reality that there's no finish line. Like we, we actually say that one of the, the biggest insights of whether or not a new client is gonna be successful uh, when they're engaging with us is the health of their product backlog, right? And that means how big is the foresight they have into the things that they may have to 
develop someday. And half of that will go away and they won't end up building it, but you should always be looking at the product roadmap and the product backlog to make sure that there is a vision for the future and you don't run out of things and it just stops. Or it does just stop. That's okay too. It's okay to kill things. That's what I like to do when I first go. So, so what are we not doing? What are we not doing that is going to allow us to create space for things that we'd like to do? It's okay to let things go. It's okay to shut them down. It's a lot better to shut them down than to, uh, to allow them to continue to exist and erode and be, and, and be stale. And your organization has to carry them. Every time you carry something forward that's old and out of date, somebody has to test it. Somebody has to check it. Somebody has to make sure. So your whole organization, both mentally and from a resource perspective, are carrying this load that they don't need to carry anymore that you should abandon. It's, and I get it. It's scary. I'm the one who tells you, oh, just tell your customers. Like, yeah, you don't need that anymore. That's why. Mm -hmm. But that, that's worth doing so you can free your organization to focus on the new things that people need to be able to do to continue to keep the customers you have and get the customers you want. I'm talking to somebody who is having a hard time with their organization. He said, I'm doing the same thing I did last year and my performance review feedback wasn't very good. There's a reason for that. Something changed. Something's different. And we can decide that that change is scary and that we don't want to deal with it, or we can say that change is opportunity. And when we lean into that opportunity, something new is now possible. Something new is, we can have a new product, we can have a new feature, we can attract a customer base that so far up until this point has closed the door to us. If we're just willing to deal with that discomfort, if we're just willing to fund things on an ongoing basis rather than having to you know, fund things in small increments with very defined outcomes. I, I see it with games, <laughs> and the games that I used to play when I was a child, you'd buy the disc or you'd buy the cartridge and you'd put it in no. the game console and no. or put it you know plug it into the Atari 2600 and then you'd play it and uh, and that was it that was the game you played yeah. and it was always the same and now I look at at Gen Z today and they're playing games like Fortnite that are constantly being changed underneath them to to keep engagement and <laughs> and so the product is robust and and the product is continuously evolving and changing in, in real time to meet the needs of a very demanding customer. I think the World of Warcraft, the reissue of the old classic game, they're running at, you have to log in like two hours before you want to play because they said there's an audience who likes this, and but if we can update it, if we can embrace this and go into these new opportunities to expand things, we can now re-engage an entire set of audiences who've moved beyond and bring them back into the fold. So if you're willing to take the risk, and I know it's scary, there is a lot of upside from leaning into this change. I mean, that example is a fascinating one, right? I, I do think the gaming industry as a whole is leading in this way in, in many ways, right? It, it is the game itself evolving, but also so many dynamics within it. Um, and uh, you're right, it, you, you said it really well. It's the expectation of the gamers now that that's going to happen. And I think you see others look to those markets saying, I want that for my mm -hmm. products. And really what, what they haven't characterized is that's the product mindset. It's a product that's constantly evolving. It's this characteristic that you talk about in the book that's making that successful that with, with good deployment from other CTOs and other organizations, we'll start to see that same concept roll into lots of different places. And I, I think what we see that's different today in this digital world than what we saw in the past was the velocity of that has picked up, yeah. right? If you think back, 
20, 30 years. All right, cars. Let's take that as a product example, right? We're going to go buy a car. Well, every year you released a new car, right? And there was evolution in that car. So this, this expectation of change and modernization has always been there. But what's different is when you're not building a physical asset, but you're building a digital asset, the ability to cycle through those iterations is exponentially greater. And so the expectation of the customer now is that it's not an annual release of a new car, um, but it is take clothing, right? It is clothing delivered on my doorstep every month, right? Like those types of things are changing within the economy where the expectation of the buyer is just totally different. In the book, Product Mindset, you hit on a number of themes that I think deserve a deeper dive. So I'm going to mention some of these, and then I'd love to just hear your response, some of your thoughts on how executives need to think differently. The first, user experience versus features. How should executives be thinking differently as a result of of that dynamic? A lot of people want to compete, and a lot of salespeople want to sell on the old school checklist look, we have more checks than the other people. We have all these things. You get, all, you get this and the package and this other thing and this other thing and these all, isn't that great? You get so many things. How many of those things do you actually use? How many of those things make your life better? Um, so what we've seen time and time again is it's a quality user experience. When you give them the thing they need in the moment that they need it, and you deliver in that moment with that experience that wins, you have now won a customer for a long time. Think about you know, the hospitality industry. And when they, in that moment, where you're like, I don't know what happens, and they find something or they, they surprise you, you have now won a customer. And so user experience, a lot of people, it's been interesting. Throughout my career, I spent so many years fighting for user experience. So many years saying, no, we got to do the research. No, we got to do the testing. No, trust me, it's going to be okay. And, and now I've seen this in total shift where people are like, yes, we need to do that. We don't know how. Yes, we need to do that. We're not sure how best to do it, where to invest, where to do it. So seeing a lot more people recognize that that doing this testing, this research, and understanding your customer is really important. And my favorite example of that, somebody might be in the room who is involved in this particular situation. We were working on a product for um, the Common App, which is a wonderful organization, like one of my favorite clients of all time. And they knew they needed to do a mobile experience, but they weren't quite sure what it was. And so we dove in with uh, research and testing. We tested with 35 students over 33 days, six rounds of prototyping to figure out what the students need. And uh, one of the we had to do a lot of tests at night and on weekends because that's when we could work with students. And one of the days, we had scheduled five hours of testing on a Sunday. And I expected that Chad was only going to be on the first one. He sat on for five hours as we went through person after person. And, for the, and then he insisted his entire team, all the engineers, QA, everybody who touched the product would sit there and listen to these people talk about their experience, listen to them try to interact with the prototype we've created. And for the very first time, they actually got to experience what things and understand what things were like for the people they were building for. That for the first time, they saw that the way students thought about the college application process was fundamentally different than the way they'd structured their application. They got to understand how the decisions that they made impact these students at one of the most important times of their life. And that's the power of user experience done well. It's not just beautiful. It's, it helps you at that moment where you need it 
We need that guidance. And the only way we're going to get there is by doing some research and testing to figure it out. Because I can tell you, if I've known anything in all the years I've done this, I am wrong all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm wrong all the time. I think it's going to be good, and it's great, and then it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, when, if I were to summarize that, right, user experience is all about solving to need, figuring out what that need is so you can build to need. Feature development is all about building to requirements. Yeah. And the requirements are wrong 87% of the time, yeah. right? Don and Don Hiles and Michael Rabjohns came up with a our new um, user experience research framework. They did a great thing, and Artie, who's here, has also been a big contributor to this. Um, we call it fast, focused, and flexible. Three Fs. We're not trying to do a huge research study with a big N that's very academic that sits on a shelf and nobody does anything with it. We're trying to do things that are quick, that are really focused, and that are going to give teams the information and inputs they need to make better decisions. And this next piece is really related to some of the things that you just mentioned, David. Customer value versus technical superiority. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how many times uh, we get caught up in thinking that a digital product is all about technology. Uh, And it's really not, right? I think that's what the product mindset is about, is reminding us that technology for its own sake is invention, not innovation, right? Innovation uh, is is not the academic exercise of technology and just trying to push forward new capabilities. Successful products are built on actually leveraging technology to solve real problems, right? And I I think that is the crux of um, really what we're trying to, to share. Let's do just one more. Choice versus brand loyalty. Oh, this, is, this is one of my favorites <laughs> because I, I love the story. I am one of the most fanatic brand advocates for Southwest Airlines. Love them. I think what they stand for is awesome. I think um, the way they practice what they preach and they, they, they exercise their beliefs is unbelievable. But I've actually only flown them twice in my entire life. <laughs> right? I will advocate to you, right? If you were to ask me the net promoter score question of, you know, how would you refer this to? I'd say nine or ten, because I, I think what they stand for is awesome. That's brand loyalty. But they actually don't solve my problem. They don't solve my need. When I have a flying decision to make, I'm a business traveler. And I fly a lot, and so I'm a frequent flyer, and United Airlines, their hub is right by my house. And even though I really can't stand United Airlines, I fly them every time because that's where the hub is and I get the most direct flights and I've got such amazing status that they take really good care of me. And that is they are solving to my need. They are not creating a brand. I'm not saying brand's not important. I think brand is incredibly important, but both are important. It's important that you tease out that difference and you understand that difference. And I I would uh, say that really understanding why people choose, how you're solving real problems can lead to a situation like United where... I'm choosing it because it solves my problem and they make my life easy at that moment, not because I believe in their brand or I think that, you know, I'm a brand loyalist. So let's close by pulling it all together. The key themes that that really come out in the Product Mindset book, how do executives put it all together? How do they employ these techniques? How do they ensure that they're building a team that has a product mindset, and that they're building a team that will thrive in this new digital economy? I think it starts with adopting the language and asking the questions. So for number one, what I've learned from eight years 
um, working with people all over the year, world doing software is that people underinvest in context. They underinvest. They think, you know, we had a client in the home improvement space, and the team that was building their product does. They don't buy that in the country that they're working in. They don't. They don't have them. They, they have other things, but they didn't even know what it was. It goes back to the service bench. People all over, they don't actually understand how their business makes money. They don't understand who their customers are. They don't understand what the roadmap is. Chances are you have an organization working today that has no idea what they're trying to achieve. So the one thing you can fix is make it real clear what that is and make sure everybody knows it and check it. If you could just do that, then you get your organization focused on outcomes. The rest of this becomes very possible and very impactful. But start there. What it, the whole product mindset is about the idea we build to outcomes. That we as a company don't just believe in writing quality code and doing great user experience and having a great backlog or product roadmap. That what we are there to do is to help people. We are help to help them fix their problems with their customers. To help them. Um, grow their companies and satisfy their investors and make their customers happier. And we can do that when we understand what they're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that I could say that any better except to say the, the premise of the book is that product is different, that if you first understand how it's different, and then you teach your team how to think in that world and provide them the context to think and make judgment calls— and then create the culture where they can actually do that, actually empower them to do that, um, that you will be infinitely more successful than if you continue to operate in a world of mandating what we're building and just driving execution, um, but instead to drive the execution through empowerment of these ideals of providing this context. Um, and so I think understanding is the first place to start. Understand why product is different than other types of software. Dive into understanding what you're trying to build and why you're trying to build it and who you're trying to solve, and then empower your team with all that information and let them run and, and teach them how to think and make judgment calls. And at the end of the day, I'm a true believer after seeing it, right, that the products we have built have, have built billions of dollars of equity value for our clients. And that result has come from this um, approach to really empowering people uh, to, to work in this context and with this mindset. Jessica, David, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts today and for bringing this book to life. I think it's a valuable uh, tool for every executive, and it, it helps those companies that are moving from being an analog company in an analog world to one that wants to thrive in, in this new digital economy. So thank you both. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> Jessica, David, during the initial days of writing the book, what were some of your biggest areas of learning? Well, one of our favorite memories, I'll start with this. <laughs> there was a point um, that we got stuck. Oh, yeah. And we were really struggling with the, the framework and how we had built the characteristics and then the principles. And one of the principles in particular we were, we were struggling with, and it, it was this concept that, that Jessica first uh, just brought up about um, building to outcomes. And um, building to outcomes we've always known is essential, 
But we realized that we had buried it too deep within the mindset and that it was one of the principles versus an overarching theme of the book. And uh, so we had probably one of the most fun experiences the two of us have ever had, just brainstorming, collaborating. We got on a whiteboard and we were, I mean, it was just frantic. You would have, uh, uh, you know, uh, anybody watching us probably laughing at us. But it was like one of those breakthrough moments where we rejiggered the framework of the book and it was just kind of an aha moment. And, and it's when we, I think it was the, the principle that we replaced was build to outcome what do we replace it with? Was it solve, solve to need? need? Um, and it's where solve for need came in versus the building for outcomes and building for outcomes became the overarching theme. So I, I think that was definitely a lesson for us and just a learning of um, we had been going so fast with the product mindset that we were taking concepts. We hadn't necessarily structured them in a way that totally hung together when we tried to write a book against it. Um, and so just the insight of how much a book forces you to get that framework right and that logic right so it totally hangs together um, and it doesn't fall apart on you. That That's what comes to my mind. I don't know what comes to yours. Yeah, actually one of my, that goes before, I think it took us a while before we can even write a book. Like we had this idea and we had gone through it, but we had to crystallize it. And uh, Bogdan, Mirsan, and I were working on coming up with the first version of the principles, and we had presented it to the sales team, and we just bombed. Like, it was bad. <laughs> like, we thought we, we thought we had something figured out, and yes, I see you two laughing back there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we thought we had it, and we're like, and then we get this feedback, and we're like, oh, God, yeah, no, that was not it. That was, that was definitely not it. it was, and so we start to work it around, and, and it's pretty hard, and we, we get some help. But then we start to think, all of a sudden, one morning, we're like, I think we got something. And so Bogdan is on, is from Romania, and he's on a, a hangout on my laptop. And so I think we got it. And then we started walk, I started walking around our office with him on my laptop, and we kept testing the idea with a bunch of people. Like, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And we'd go back in the room, we'd call somebody from another country and like get them on the line with us, and then we'd talk about, what do you think about this? And they're like, oh yeah, that's it. And so from great disappointment uh, and consternation and, and, and not being able to sleep that particular evening um, <laughs> comes, <laughs> comes some big surprises that help you along the way. That's awesome. That's a wonderful story. With a product mindset, there's clearly trade-offs. Mm. What are some of those trade-offs, and how do executives decide which trade-offs to make? Everything's a trade-off. It's just a constant, constant source of trade-offs. So the way I, I think of it, and the way I tend to explain it to people, is imagine you want to do a home remodel of some sort. And you have a really great contractor. And you start walking around, and you've done a lot of Pinterest, and you're obsessed with Fixer Upper, as my brother is. And you come up with all these ideas that you want for this dream thing that you have. And then all of a sudden, you start walking this person around. They say, well, that's going to be $2,000, and, and that's going to be a, you know, maybe $100. And this is going to be this. And then all of a sudden, now you have to start making some decisions. All of a sudden, when you can put money against it, now we have to make a call. And we're constantly making trade-offs in this process. We're constantly saying, well, when do I want to release it? Or how much, who, what customer does it serve? Or when am I going to take on technical debt? And oh yeah, you need to take on some technical debt. As long as you know you're doing it, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to have to decide, when do I need to make a shortcut here? Or when do I prioritize this person needs or the other? Or 
when do I choose this method or, or the next method? And one of the things that Jeff Nielsen taught us is a lot about how to do um, a process we call story brainstorming and affinity estimation. So we actually get it out in front of people and talk it through. So when you're having to make that decision, you know what it costs. And your team has thought through all those trade-offs or alternatives, a way of doing things. That process has to be very visible. The reason why you see a lot of friction between the product and engineering organizations and the rest of the company is because it's invisible. Mm -hmm. Because it's a black box where money come in, comes in and what comes out is, yeah, I can't make it in. Mm -hmm. yeah. We have to expose that and make sure that people understand. When you ask me for this, what you're really asking me is for you know, 20 points worth of work, and that's gonna push a whole bunch of other stuff out of the way. So let's talk about if that's the right decision or not. I, I'm actually thrilled that you asked this question because one of my regrets of the book is that I don't think we address trade-offs explicitly enough. Um, so I, I'm actually thrilled that you teased that out because <laughs> I think it's implicit, it's not explicit. And you hit the nail on the head. I mean, this is all about trade-offs. And, and when I think of how do you navigate that, um, I go back to the North Star. And the North Star is, what is your business objective? If you are a product and you're trying to self-fund, you better have a crystal clear single objective that you're pursuing. It's probably revenue dollars. It could be market share. It could be so, but it, it is crystal clear. And it's that one thing that you can weigh everything against. Is this going to drive more dollars onto the table? Yes or no? Right, and and that's why I think that characteristic and the the principle of um, minimizing time to value that goes with it is so critically important, is because it guides those trade off decisions so that you don't run out of money, so that you create a profitable, growing product, which is ultimately what the business is trying to do. So, David, you just mentioned that there's things you left out of the first book. <laughs> that sounds a lot like a promise of a second book. <laughs> Can't even get the first one out. They're already yeah. asking for the second. One, one final question. How do you balance your concept in the product mindset that a product is never done mm -hmm. with sometimes the requirement that a product needs to be retired or, or needs, to, uh, needs to be ended and, and can't? So, Jessica, I think you alluded to this a little bit. How do you balance that, and how do you know when it's time to stop evolving a product? I, uh, I had a rare moment of being maybe more excitable than I should have been uh, many years ago when I first started. I was with a client and we were working on their portfolio and their planning for the following year. And they said, we have 40 products. I'm like, wow, 40 products. That's, that's, that's a lot. And they said, okay, well, like, what's the distribution of revenue? I'm like, well, only about five of them make money. And I couldn't stop myself. I'm like, well, so shut the other 35 down. <laughs> I could not stop those words from getting out of my mouth in that moment. But I'm like, shut it down. It is just like anything else. A product will go through its natural life cycle. It will, it will go on the S curve, if you will. It will start slow. It will take off. It'll plateau for a while. But there comes a moment where something new is emerging. There's a new regulatory environment. There's a new business environment. There are new customer needs. There's a new demographic coming into the workforce. They're coming. And as your product starts to decline, something new has to be there to replace it. And you probably don't have a lot of, you may have extra dollars. You may be able to get extra capital. You may be able to call someone like us and we can bring extra skills and extra capability to the table, but you only have so many brains. You only have so much mind share. You only have so much tension from the leadership and organization that can keep things going. So as that new opportunity emerging, something needs to go away. 
a lot of times what I see in organizations is people struggling because they have, you know, too many things in progress. And one of the main kind of working methods that is Jonathan Rivers' favorite is Kanban. And there's the idea in Kanban, we can only have so many things in progress at any given moment. And so there comes a moment where it's time to let go of something. And that's hard, right? That's scary. You're going to have to go out to those clients, those customers and say, like, listen, this is not going to be here and we need to replace this. We have to have a plan for doing that. We have to navigate those. But, you know, at some moment, you're either going to ride that to the bottom or you're going to get on something new and you're going to disrupt yourself or somebody's coming after you. It's just a question of what. Yeah. The idea that the product is never done is really about successful products and viable products. At the point where it stops, it's no longer viable and successful. It's going to erode. So there's nothing wrong with making that decision that it's time for it to be retired. And you may have some legroom left, and there may be some life as it pitters out. But as soon as you stop evolving it, you are acknowledging that, you know what, this is going to erode, and eventually it's going to be taken over. And that's a good thing, right? It's just that we want people to be deliberate about that. We want them to say, oh, I am end-of-lifing this product, and so I'm going to stop evolving it, and I know that because I'm going to stop evolving it, it's going to erode away. Jessica, David, thank you again. I've really enjoyed this conversation, so thank you. Thank you, you, Sean. I appreciate it. Thank you. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at threepillarglobal.com or visit us at threepillarglobal.com.